You're listening to the Boss Business of Surgery series, episode 64. Today, we talk about what to do when you feel like your brain is broken. I talk to Dr. Heather Hancock. She's a trauma surgeon who battled a diagnosis of bipolar, and her ability to navigate her career is nothing short of inspirational. She is giving those of you going through this the hope to recognize you have the ability to be yourself again. She shares her path, the things that got in her way, and she provides a roadmap for those of you who may be dealing with it. Welcome surgeons. Residency didn't teach us everything we needed to learn to be a successful surgeon. While we spent our time caring for patients and learning how to operate, we didn't learn how to advocate for ourselves or navigate our career. I'm your host, Dr. Amy Vertries. I'm a general surgeon, certified coach, and founder of the Boss Business of Surgery series. This is where you'll learn those lessons not taught in residency. Hancock and I have crossed paths multiple times, and you know we're both military veterans, and uh, most recently have been sharing stories. And I think she's got a really compelling story that's going to help a lot of people. And so I'm really excited to hear all about your journey of you know you coming from an unlikely background and all the the roadblocks that came along the way. So, but first, let's start from the beginning. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm a, a trauma critical care surgeon that works in uh, rural America up in Bangor, Maine. Um, I am an avid painter. Uh, I read a lot. I'm a a very, I would say, absent mother at times, (laughs) but do my best. As most Um, of the surgeons feel like, that's for sure. Yes, yes. And I am um, married. I've been married for 24 years with some ups and downs and a break in between. Um, And other than that, you know, I'm... I'm just uh, in the mid part of my career and looking to to make it towards the end. Let's get back to the very beginning. So okay. I know you had a very interesting, um, you know, growing up and, you know, maybe you didn't even realize it at the time, but I know that you had some flashbacks that kind of, you know, took you back to those times. So take us a little bit um, back to the start. So, well, I mean, really, I grew up um, quite poor. My dad had been, well, my mom and dad had both been in the Navy. And when my mom got pregnant with me, you know, back then that was not, you know, a great thing to be pregnant in the military. So she had the choice of get out of the military or continue working. And she started bleeding and having uh, a lot of blood loss and a threatened pregnancy. And so she just, she made the decision to get out of the military because she didn't want to lose me. Um, and so we basically were a one income family. Um, and back then, you know, enlisted people didn't really get paid a lot still today, you know, it's not comparable to outside the military, but, um, back then it was really bad. And so we lived on base in a trailer, um, for most of my young life or, um, we're in, in trailer parks kind of around the base, which if you've ever been around a base, you know, the, the places that the bases are stationed are lower income areas. Um, and, and I went to public school, which was great. Uh, it was kind of my salvation going through uh, schooling um, because home life was not all that great as I grew up. Um, a lot of money worries at home um, and came out in basically uh, neglect and some emotional abuse as a child. 
um, from my mom, who's my primary caregiver. Um, so I learned very early on that I was what they call trailer trash or white trash. Um, I was called that a lot as a child. Um, and in school, it was kind of the first place that I'd learned that, that I could be judged based on my merit and the things that I could bring to the table. Um, and so I blossomed in school while at the same time being very um, shy and introverted um, because I knew that the other kids didn't really like me in my head, right? So I had very few, few friends growing up. Um, I kept a very tight cluster of people that I trusted. Um, and it was never, I was never a part of like a clique or anything like that. I could see the cliques, but because I moved so much with my dad being in the military, um, I never really fostered long-term friendships. I would foster very superficial friendships, um, as a child, you know, that, that I did not keep up as I kept moving. Um, but the one, the one thing that was always consistent was school. And so I became very, how do you, like, I became very much an independent thinker where I could felt like I could only believe in myself and that I couldn't believe in anything that anyone else was saying or doing that it was all on me. And I went through that way my entire, um, you know, middle school and high school up until this one night that I was, I was up for poet laureate of my high school and I had invited my mom to come watch me win the, win the award, you know, and she was constantly trying to, to knock down my expectations of myself. She was like, well, you know, don't, don't worry if you don't win. I still love you. You know, was her way of trying to support me. Mm -hmm. And it irritated me to death because I was like, I know I'm going to win. This is, this is not a question. And so we're sitting there in the theater and I can remember, you know, the smell of the old curtains and the, the dust in the room. And, and it was really dark. And I look over at her and she's like, she does that. Okay. So when you don't win, don't worry, we'll still go get something special afterwards. Yeah. You know, and food was always the special thing. So I don't know if we're going to go get ice cream or what it was. I don't remember, but I was, I was, I just remember being so infuriated in that moment. Mm -hmm. that somebody that I cared about did not believe in me. And I could tell that you've thought about this a lot because, you know, on its surface, it seems like she's not being supportive, but it sounds like you, you kind of evolved to the idea that this is just the only way re she really could support you. And, you know, I think that your ability to, to, you know, understand yourself and your, um, you know, your ability to overcome your own self doubts is that you didn't actually have to read into that. Well, yeah. Yeah. It was at the, I mean, at the moment, as they started announcing, you know, the third place person, the second place person, my mom's like, you know, gripping my hand and, and she looks over at me and she goes, just don't get upset. Just don't get upset. And I remember looking at her and going, I'm going to win this is a certainty, you know, and she, <laughs> and when they called my name, she was stunned. 
Um, and, and I got up there and I read my monologue and my monologue was about her dad who she had a very contentious relationship with. And it was about the story about us fishing and, and just how I would give anything to see him again, you know, and by the end she was crying and it was very emotional night, but it was one of those moments in my life where my mom looked at me and realized that she didn't know me. Yeah. And, what, um, so what do you think that she was thinking in that moment? Well, I've asked her because, because I hate to read into what other people think. If I have the opportunity to just ask them, I feel like it's, um, it's much more honest and truthful um, and so I just asked her and she's like, I just was amazed by you. You know, at the time I thought she hates me. You know, she thinks that I'm, it, it kind of goes back to this other time when I, when I, um, I was younger and I went to gifted, the gifted testing and she did the same thing, you know, kind of don't worry if you don't get this, nobody gets this. This is only for special kids. You know, and when I tested as gifted, she looked at me and said, you're like a little alien. <laughs> oh my and, yeah. And, and at the time it broke my heart, you know, um, but looking back at it, she just was trying. Yeah. And I've talked to her again about this. She, she really was just trying to express how she didn't know how she was going to support me because she felt so bad about herself. And so over the, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. And I think that's the, the biggest thing is that, you know, like there's so many traps that we still fall into this mind reading that we think we know what they're thinking. And, mm -hmm. you know, we think we know what they're thinking and we're actually interacting with this, you know, inner dialogue that we are having that they're not even a part of, you know, and so we take their cues and we make it mean a lot unless we, you know, um, step outside of ourselves, which is difficult. It's difficult to get out of that inner narrative, which feels so strong and true and, you know, get into someone's head and understand where they're thinking. And, and, you know, you obviously had the key to that, which is just saying, Oh, what, what are you thinking? <laughs> you just have to ask. <laughs> that took a long time to get to though, yeah. because my family's very, very much about hiding everything. Mm -hmm. We don't talk about the bad stuff in our family. Yeah. You know? And so it took up until I was in college mm -hmm. to, I had a confrontation with my mom where I basically, we discussed all of these things and how mm -hmm. they made me feel. And she owned it. And she said, yes, I did those things. And, and this is why and what it meant. And so we actually had the conversation. That I think everyone wants to have that has a contentious relationship with their parent to get closure. Mm -hmm. I got that, you know, and, and it changed my life. It made me very sure of myself Mm -hmm. where it before uh, before I wasn't and I can kind of guess where what happened next is that you know first we start believing in ourselves and then we start questioning what other people are doing or and and you know acting independently of what they think um and recognizing a lot of times what they think isn't even true but it sounded like as you're growing up a lot of your validation came with school and achievements and so take us through you know that path of going to medical school and and you know, how did you get to that point well, it started with being told that I couldn't go to college, that we were too poor, that um, there was no support there to, to go to college. And if I wanted to do it, I was going to have to do it on my own. 
And I, so I asked my mom if she would take me just to tour the state schools because I, because I felt like the state schools were the bar that I might be able to get to. And she took me to the University of South Florida and we were walking around. There's this little crumpled piece of paper on the ground. And I picked it up to throw it away because the, the campus was so beautiful. I, I just, you know, didn't want this crumpled piece of paper on the, on the ground. And when I picked it up, I, I opened it up thinking, well, maybe it's somebody's homework or something that they, that they need, you know, and it got trashed somewhere along the way. And when I opened it, it was a scholarship application. And I said to myself, I'm going to fill this out. You know, I'm going to try. And we looked everywhere to see if there was a clean one, you know, one that was new. And we, we never found another application. Um, we even asked at the application, you know, at the, at the office. And they had no idea where this application had come from. So I took it home and I, um, I smoothed it on the door jam. And then I filled it out. And I sent it in. And I ended up getting this, this scholarship application for the H. Lee Moffitt Cancer Scholarship Foundation. And it was a four-year ride to USF. And that is how I got into college, was I picked up this piece of trash and it became treasure. Like, Amazing. that's the only way I can think of it. Every time I, I tell the story is, it, it's, it was something put in my path that changed the course of my life unbelievable just that moment in time it's just amazing so now take us through like you've now gone to college and you're in medical school when was the first time you started wondering is there something going on with me that i'm not understanding um you mean from a mental health perspective or okay so during uh in during my what year is that uh, I think it was during my second year of medical school. Um, I started having abdominal pain and we were reading about abdominal aortic aneurysms and all this stuff. And I, and I could really feel the pulse in my, in my abdomen. So I thought, Oh my God, do I have an abdominal aortic aneurysm? You know, way over the top thinking about, about what uh, could be going on. And so I went to the family medicine doctor and I was like, you know, this is kind of my fear I have this horrible stomach pain and he sent me to psychiatry and it turns out, you know, the psychiatrist listened to everything, did, did an interview and it turned out that I had H pylori. Hmm. And so it was a medical condition. I'm still, <laughs> I'm, I'm struggling. Where on earth does psychiatry come from? He just thought I was really over the top with my concerns and, and, you know, in medical school, you don't get a lot of sleep if you're studying a lot. And I'm sure that I came across as very frazzled. Mm -hmm. um, and then in intern year, um, I, you know, like I said, I was sleeping in my car some nights. I wasn't showering. Um, it was 120 hours a week on cardiothoracic surgery. And, <clears throat> and somebody said, well, perhaps you should go see somebody. And so, uh, so I said, okay, sure. Because I was feeling very anxious at the time. Um, and so I went to uh, a psychiatrist and they diagnosed me with, um, what was it? Um, oh, I'm blanking on the term. Adjustment disorder. 
And, but I wasn't put on any medicine or anything. They're just like, you're just having a hard time adjusting to this new lifestyle. And I was like, I'm pretty sure anyone would have a hard time adjusting to this new lifestyle. You know? <laughs> yes. I mean, there's a reason that the hours changed. This, this was yeah. not, I mean, we can look back with rose colored glasses, but this is just not a humane way to go. It's not, it, it really isn't. I mean, and the difference between the pre 80 hour work week to the post 80 hour work week, um, which is what I did in my chief year was night and day about how I felt about, you know, just life. <laughs> but beyond that. Um, so then the first two years of residency, I was the golden child of my residency. I got intern of the year. Um, I was looked at as like the next leader of that group. And at the end of our second year, we did research for two years. And during research, I was knocking it out of the park. I was winning every research um, research competition that there was. I was traveling, you know, it was to, to present posters and things like this. I mean, I was really on top of my game. And then my colleague tried to kill himself. And I was in charge of finding him, of the search party. And that went on for like a day and a half before we found him. And the stress of that combined with, I had had a hip surgery and was on um, narcotics and Valium that I had to stop abruptly in order to, you know, kind of deal with all of this. Um, I started having psychosis, not psychosis. I'm sorry. I started having paranoia mm -hmm. um, where I was, I was sure that everyone was out to get me in some way or another. Like they were trying to destroy my career that this person that tried to kill himself, it was my fault that he tried to kill himself, which then was reinforced when he told me that, that he could not handle my success. And so he tried to kill himself. I later found out that was not the case. He had a lot of things going on, mm -hmm. but at the time it felt very real. Right. And the mind is an interesting thing too, because it's entirely possible. He had, you know, a whole lot of other things there too, but the ones that apply to us, you know, that the part that raise alarm in our, our head are, are definitely the ones that stand out for sure. Yeah. So um, this went on for about two weeks, this paranoia um, and a lot of insomnia and um, this low level anxiety all the time that like this buzz of anxiety where everything was about to fall apart. And so I went to Boston for another, um, another presentation of my research during this. And that's where everything kind of blew up. Um, I was in Boston and I had written a letter to my, to my, um, my surgical program about this person who had tried to kill themselves because he had created a very hostile work environment and had been very nasty and, you know, demeaning to me the whole time, trying to basically knock me off of my pedestal. And with the combination of his mental health and my letter, he got removed from the program. And I was feeling horrible guilt about that, mm -hmm. you know, and when 
the combination of the paranoia, the anxiety, and the guilt hit me in Boston, I became psychotic. It was just the the final trigger um, or switch that I I started having um, paranoid delusions and could not no longer really interact with people in a normal way. And what was the the key to was it you that identified it or someone else identify it? How did this come about as like now? Okay, now this is not normal because certainly like a lot that you have described in the environment of that, you know, that environment is not necessarily abnormal, but when did it turn into like, this is not okay. And, and who found, who discovered this? So actually I did. Um, during the prodrome leading up, I kept saying there's something wrong with my brain. And my mother was there visiting mm-hmm. and she kept saying, there's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing wrong with you. You know? And my husband was like, yeah, there's something wrong with you, but I don't know what it is. And I think maybe it's just that you needed another glass of wine, you know? (laughs) And so, so the, the support system was not helpful towards discovering what was wrong. And I knew something in my brain was going, was, was misfiring. At one point I was like, I think that I'm low on sugar. And I went and I got a spoonful of sugar and I ate it and it cleared up my brain for about five minutes. Hmm. And I was like, something chemically is going on with my brain, but I couldn't get anyone around me to believe me. And then I finally just looked at my, at my mom and I said, I'm going crazy. And she's like, no, you're not. Don't say that. That's a terrible thing to say. And so everyone supported me going to this Boston thing. When in my mind, I knew that I was, I was going off, I was going off the rails. And so in Boston, I just looked at my mentor and said, I, I'm losing it. I don't know exactly what's going on, but my brain is not working and I need to go home. And so on the plane ride home is where it actually, where I stopped thinking about my own brain and stopped being able to comprehend myself as a person. Hmm. Um, what do you mean by that? What happened? Well, I was in my, my fatigues on crutches from the recent, um, from the recent hip surgery. And I became very vocal on the plane about there being, um, angels and that angels and God were going to heal me and that people needed to understand that, um, that they weren't alone. So with my psychosis, I became hyper-religious. I've been raised very religious and, um, and it just took over um, kind of what I talked about. But I was, my, all of my senses were heightened. And so I could hear people behind me whispering and I could hear what they were saying, but I couldn't understand language. And so I believed that I was hearing angels. And so I was yelling that on the plane and they almost took me off the plane. I was going to ask what happened. Uh, you know, how did that play out? Well, I came home and again, my mom and my husband were there. And by the time that I got to my house, I had no control over what I was doing. And I got completely naked because that was a big theme when I 
because this happened more than once. Um, it was a big overlying theme that I had to get clean. Mm -hmm. And to be clean, I had to be pure and be um, naked, you know. So <laughs> so I got naked and uh, and I told my husband and my mother that I was healed by by Jesus. And I threw down my crutches and I tried to walk on my fresh hip. Hmm. And that didn't go so well. <clears throat> um, I injured myself. And, um, and so finally my, my family was like, this, this is not right. They called a colleague who got me into um, Wolford hall um, for evaluation. And I ended up in the ICU actually initially because nobody believed that I could be psychotic. I was, I was such a high functioning individual that nobody believed this could happen. And so for a week, they denied that it was psychosis and they kept looking for something, um, you know, like alcohol withdrawal or something else that could explain what was going on in my brain because they did not want to admit that I could be having uh, a psychotic episode. And then eventually I was interviewed by, um, by one of the military psychologists, uh, psychiatrists who asked me a simple question. And I said, and I had a moment of insight at that time that he asked me, I said, I don't know what's going on with me, but my brain is on fire. Mm -hmm. And he's like, this is not this is not what we can, what we as medical people consider a medical diagnosis. This is a mental health diagnosis. Um, and so that's how I ended up as an inpatient. It's so surprising, you know, and I think that your story shows the power of denial of, you know, not you denying it, but, you know, like when the biggest problem with, I think, mental health state things is that you don't see what's going on with the brain. You don't see, you know, the fracture or this and that, you know, all you see is this person who looks like the person that you know, who mostly acts like the person you know, except for these strange things that happen. And we all do things are a little bit, you know, not always predictable, but, you know, yours was textbook bipolar. I mean, just, I mean, everything that you've said is basically like a case vignette for it. But I mean, yes. like the whole idea of, you know, insomnia and hypervigilance and paranoia and religious references and, you know, getting naked in front of, you know, whatever, like in public. <laughs> yes. all those things are like, it's like a case vignette. And I think that your story is so powerful in the fact of, you know, we read these cases and we're like, oh, everyone looks around and like, we know what this is, you know, but when you're faced with it in reality with someone who, you know, who has been high functioning, it is so easy to ignore all the signs that were so obviously there. And, you know, even when confronted with the the literal case vignette, then how it took so many people to overcome that barrier of saying, maybe we should look at this. Yeah, it was. Um, it's been my experience that even with the diagnosis, I have people that doubt that I have the diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And, and I'm talking medical professionals in the mental health field that I have, have been following me for years are like, well, maybe you don't have it. Maybe we'll just take you off your medicine. And I'm like, no, 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 <laughs> we're not going to do that because I know what happens when we do that, you know? And, and, but they, <clears throat> they're so used to seeing people that, that the diagnosis ruins that don't come back to themselves 
that don't give the appropriate care. So they're, they're what we consider lower functioning bipolar or schizophrenia or schizoaffective or, you know, any of these um, diagnoses where we see them as chronically ill. And because in between episodes, I am so normal, they cannot believe that I have the diagnosis. Yeah. And I mean, there's the tragedy in all of this too, is that, you know, like if you're low socioeconomic, we know about those inequalities. We know about that, that lack of access to care, but we don't think about the high functioning person who does not get access to care because of our own barriers of, you know, what this means to us. It's the don't hurt your career. Don't hurt this person who's high functioning, you know, because what, what do you think their thoughts were on that. I mean, I think you already mentioned some of them, but you know, what was the barrier to allowing you to have this diagnosis? Well, there were, there were actually several. So I was in the military in training in a surgical field in a civilian, um, in a civilian platform for training. So initially the military was going to kick me out. It's called the med board for those that are, are not military, but uh, so I met a medical evaluation board and I actually asked my psychiatrist if I could go to neuropsychiatric testing to prove that once the episode was done, that it had not affected my executive functioning at all. And that I was the same person prior to the episode that I was after mentally, you know, mm-hmm. in, a, in an ability to, um, to ration, you know, be rational and make, decisions and remember all of my medical functioning and things like that. So I went to neuropsychiatric testing, which proved that I had had no decline. Um, so I brought that, I brought my research, I brought everything that would prove that I was of value to the military, to this med board. And I forgot to mention, I had shaved my head on my second episode. Um, I had had an episode where, you know, I ended up in the hospital initially. They sent me home when I wasn't completely normal. I completely shaved my head, ended up back in the hospital for another two months before I was normal. So it was really like a three month period of this psychotic episode. So when I went, I had very, very short, like a buzz cut. And they came in and they, the lawyer was telling me, you can't fight this. You're, if you fight this, you're going to get separated with nothing. You should go for a medical disability retirement. And I was like, I looked at my husband. And I said, you know what? We're not those kind of people. I know that I'm fine. We're gamblers and we're going to go all in. And so I, I fought to stay in and the med board agreed that I was fine to stay in. At the time, there was not this deployment issue where Um, if you were non-deployable, you couldn't be in the military. Mm -hmm. And so they just made me non-deployable. Yeah. And I know that probably added a lot of stress, you know, all of these things, you know, the, the time away from the, you know, when when we're geared to work all this and to take time for yourself, which you had to, and then, you know, to, to stay in the military, knowing that you couldn't be deployed in a time we were, you know, heavily deployed. Uh, I can only imagine, you know, the effect that it had on you, but tell me what was the effect that it had on you? You know, I, we would think that it would have like a a big effect on me, but I was so busy trying to get back my career that I didn't have time to think about me and what had happened. 
All I knew is that I was normal and I needed to prove to people that I was normal to get back into surgical training. Mm -hmm. And I had a huge obstacle with my program director who really thought that I should not be a surgeon. I mean, he told me it would be easier if you lost an arm because then I could just fire you. He's like, but you've put me in a position where I'm not allowed to fire you. He's like, so here's the things that you're going to have to do to get back in. You have to get the military to, to keep you so that you still have your funding. You have to have your psychiatrist say that you could still um, do the kind of hours that you need without accommodations, which I later learned is actually against the Americans with Disabilities Act. But he, he definitely said, you know, no accommodations. You have to be able to go through it just like everyone else. Um, you have to get a forensic psychiatrist to evaluate you and say that you're okay from a safety standpoint to deal with patients. And, and then he had two other things that don't seem like obstacles anymore, but at the time were, were pretty big. Um, and I said, thank you very much for providing me the roadmap to get back to being a surgeon. And so I just started knocking down those obstacles one by one. Oh, he said the medical board, the the state medical board had to say that I could have a license that was unrestricted, which everyone in training has a pit, but I had to have a real medical license in order to continue my training. Right. Now, what was it that took you through all this? Because I mean, these are, are you know, obviously new obstacles and, you know, you, clearly you were navigating them on your own because, you know, I doubt you had a, a ton of precedent for this or, or did you? Um, I mean, no precedent. True. Yeah. So how did you um, resolve, like, you know, how did you go about this fight? Because I mean, you're now going against someone who's like, I don't really want you here. And, but, you know, since you didn't lose your arm and it's just your mind, well, I guess we'll have to do these things. <laughs> Right. Um, I, you know, it's this thing inside of me that I, that I developed as I was growing up that I am just not going to quit. Um, some people call it grit. Some people call it resilience, but I had the surety that I was me and my brain was fine, that I was an excellent surgeon. I had been, you know, up until the point that I had my, my psychosis, and I would be again. And so I just started reaching out. Um, I initially reached out to the Texas Medical Board, who very politely, you know, um, sent me a letter saying, we're not the people that you want to talk to. You want to talk to the Texas Physicians Health Program. And that's the first time that I learned that every state has a physician's health program that is separate from the medical board. And their main purpose of existence is to provide monitoring for for physicians that have um, mental health or substance abuse issues. And that there were a lot of them. Yeah. And I think that that knowledge is, is, you know, really helpful because, you know, on the one side, we see you, we know you're half functioning. We know that you have a lot to offer and hearing your story is such a remarkable one. But on the other side, you know, how do we determine that are the physicians that patients interact with are safe? And it sounds like this is the, we have these boards in each state that have the ability to assess this, both from a substance abuse and a mental health uh, side. And you mentioned that there's a lot, um, you know, 
give us some insight into the number. How did you find this number of, of how many people are actually going through all this? Sure. <clears throat> Excuse me. So some states are, are what they consider non-punitive, where everything is kept confidential. Some states um, I would consider punitive because they make the, um, the diagnosis, not the, not the uh, physician's name, but the diagnosis, uh, maybe the physician's name at some points. Anyway, in some states, um, I would consider it punitive because they make it public your diagnosis. And so I was able to research different states to find where I could get my medical license because in the military, you can have it anywhere um, where I could get my medical license, where it was in a non-punitive physician's health program so that it wouldn't be made public what my diagnosis was. And I found that in each state, um, there were thousands of doctors on this program, thousands yeah, that's, I think that that in itself, you know, tells us something that there's a definitely a problem that we all need to, you know, look at or just be aware of the fact that the thousands of physicians are struggling. And, you know, quite honestly, when we look at all that we've been through, and all the pressures that we have, and you think of just the, the general average, you know, amount of mental health things that go on, I mean, how, how could it not be thousands? Right. And it was kind of comforting to find that. Mm-hmm. you know, to see that I was not the only one. And it gave me a strength because I was like, if, if thousands of people before me have done this, that hold my diagnosis, why can't I? Mm-hmm. So the first aspect was fighting at the ground level of where your program director was at and, you know, deciding that you're going to stay and looking at the medical board and figuring out what you needed to do to stay and, you know, what was your next step in that? You know, so now you've gotten approval from the military to stay. Now you've gotten approval from the medical board to get a license. You know, what was your next step, um, your next challenge? Well, my next challenge went back to my program director. Um, I found that he had gone to um, a group of senior surgeons, told them my diagnosis, and then asked them, should I be allowed to continue in the program? And about 50% of them said yes, and 50% said no. And I had a very strong advocate, um, a Dr. Cohen, who was like, look, I, I know plenty of people that have these diagnoses, and as long as they're medicated, they're doing great. And this is completely against the law, what you're doing. And so it kind of set up this dynamic where my program director would let people know before my rotation that I had some mental health issues, setting up a poisoned well situation where then I would have to overcome that stigma and bias every rotation. And so it really beat me down over the years. Um, And it, it, go ahead. Yeah, I, I can imagine because I mean, it's already hard enough to prove yourself without any, you know, the poison well approach. So, you know, what kept you going through all that time? About, uh, it was about the other 50%, the 50% that said, let's, let's judge her based on her, on her merit and how she does clinically. Um, and they were really my corner, you know, there's, 
um, my one of my strongest experiences was with a Dr. Alicia Loeb, who had been told, you know, about this situation. And she was such a bright moment in my life where someone truly believed in me despite what they had been told and, and was approaching me without bias and assisting me like they would anyone else. You know, I mean, I had my struggles with technical skills and learning new things and she approached me just like she would anyone, anyone else. And that changed my mentality of the people that were out there that were going to be my colleagues, that they weren't all going to look down on me and try to, to put their thumb on me. Mm -hmm. And I found that in different people each, each year over and over that just kept me going for those, those other people that didn't. Now, I think that's such a lesson for those of us, you know, who had been um, in, in academics and, you know, who are responsible for these people going through training is, you know, there's the rare person and maybe not so rare, honestly, of, you know, who actually sees the person, not the resident. And I think that my program director had said, you know, it's easy, it's easy to train the, the, the ones that don't have any problems. It's easy to train the ones who are strong and self-motivated. He said, you know, really the strength of um, someone in training or who's training other people is the ability to see the person and help someone who needs help rather than the person who does not. So kudos to all those people that you ran across who saw you as a person. And there's more of them out there than you would think. Like when, when you come, when you hit the wall of a mental health diagnosis and you hit all the obstacles that are put there, you fully believe that no one's in support of you because it's so overwhelming. Mm -hmm. And when you actually get out in, in real practice, you start finding that there's more people that either have suffered something themselves, known somebody that has suffered something, or just are not biased people that will support you. And it made, it made all the difference in getting through. And I suspect, and tell, correct me if I'm wrong, probably your biggest obstacle is probably overcome your own thoughts about all this. Like, how did you overcome the, the doubts within your head? Like, how did you determine that you're okay? Well, I had a second psychotic episode. <laughs> mm-hmm. And um, that happened when I had breast cancer. I was going through treatment. Um, in my fellowship and I went psychotic again from, you know, everything. And the day that I came back to myself, it's like a light switch. You know, one day you're, you're completely an amoeba and then a light switch happens and I'm myself again. And, and I thought to myself, this is a lifelong, a lifelong disease that has the potential to take me out at any time for, for a period of time, but it's not me. It's not my, my, um, my capability. It's not, it's my own limitation in my own brain if I allow it to be. And, and I did allow it to be for those years of surgical training. I really did. Um, I allowed it to be a limitation. And now I just say to myself, 
everyone has something that they're going to die of that is going to take them out of practice for a while. Um, be it diabetes. I had, you know, a resident that his diabetes was so uncontrolled, he dropped out. Um, be it a stroke, be it a rattlesnake bite that causes you to, to have a hypotensive event and takes out your brain with an anoxic injury that happened to one of my, one of my um, mentors, you know? So there are strange things and common things that are going to knock everyone down. But if I allow this to take me out, then I've let that part of my brain win. And I'm just not going to let the negative win. And it sounds like through all of your story, you had to confront this part of your brain that was, you know, doing its own independent thing. And, you know, I can see how like, by working through all of this with other people, like you had to like, you know, buy into and protect that part that knew that you were okay. And I wonder, you know, if that's how you overcame that is this, that you had to, because there was so much opposition to it. Yeah, that's essentially exactly it in a nutshell. You know, even, even the mental health professionals would, <laughs> I mean, they, they actually, would question other mental health professionals diagnosis and say, well, this can't possibly be real. You have to have, you know, schizophrenia, you have to have schizoaffective disorder for this to be real. And I'm like, um, no, I just, I don't know exactly what I'm going with with that, but um, I will say that, that I met with the psychiatrist that originally diagnosed me just the other day because I was fighting the military for some disability issue. And when I met with him, he told me the story of how my story gave other people hope hmm. that he used my story, you know, without my name or whatever, but to, to, to tell his psychiatric residents to give it their all in every situation, especially low socioeconomic situations, because that person had the potential to become themselves again. And in speaking with him, it just reinforced that belief that no matter what I've been, what hand I've been dealt, what my brain can do, the limited belief in me by other individuals that I know who I am. I know my capabilities and I just have to try to help those people understand that they're wrong. <laughs> That's about it. Yeah, no, I, I wrote this down. I mean, like it, that gaining the ability to be yourself again, I mean, that takes like the ability to actually know who you are in the first place to know the part to be able to recognize a part of you that is not yourself. And I know that you've, you mentioned this too, is like, like, how do you know um, that, you know, you're about to have an episode or that, you know, some to be on alert. And I remember you saying that, you know, I know who I am and I, I can see it coming. You know, I can, re I recognize a part of me that is not me. It's, it's actually a physical feeling in the brain. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And I don't, I haven't spoken to enough people to ask them if they feel the same way, but I do know in reading about like um, people with schizophrenia that they talk about their brains not functioning right. So they must feel something, you know, um, in me, I can actually feel my brain firing, misfiring. And so it heats up in parts that are active and then other parts are just silent. And the parts that are that are heating up are not parts that I normally focus on or use. And so it, my brain feels abnormal during those times. And that's how I recognize that something is going on. And, you know, this ability to, to recognize this and see who you are and recognizing something is off, you know, I know that it's going to give someone who may be just dealing with this initially, who knows the parts that, that are there and wondering, you know, am I going to be able to stay myself? You know, that the, your ability to provide inspiration to other people who are going through this, who are having the deniers, who are having the obstructionist, you know, your ability to tell your story is going to be such an inspiration to people. And I'm guessing I know the answer to this, but I suspect you did not know that this was going to be inspiration for other people. <laughs> I did not. <laughs> um, it feels it feels very personal, and I think that I think that when I listen to inspirational stories, they feel huge, and this to me feels very small because it is so personal. Um, but it's a huge problem when you actually look at it nationwide, worldwide. You know, mental health is it's a huge problem. And so I can see how, how it, how it would be inspirational. Yeah. And of course it feels small because it's hidden, you know, like no one actually really wants to share all this because of the stigma associated with it. You know, like you are an exceptional person and the fact that none of this took you down, you could have easily, you know, exited off this, you know, relatively public path at any moment, you know, with the first diagnosis, with the first med board, with this, you know, you could have like, driven off of this exit, like or exit off any time, uh, but you didn't. And I think that that the ability to recognize that other people have this choice, like, I think your story is going to hit the people who are facing an exit coming up and saying, should I take it? Because they don't know what it looks like on the other side. And, you know, to know that you can still be high functioning, that you could still practice, you know, as a surgeon to do so safely. And, you know, all those things are, are things that people in this thousands of people need to hear this. And, you know, I think that the more that we can um, educate people on the mental health struggles, then it's, it's going to help everybody because it does feel small and personal and, you know, problematic and all these things. And there's, there are resources that you've dis discovered when you had to, but a lot of people don't even know that they're out there. So what were some of the resources? You already mentioned that, you know, each state um, has a, a, a board for physicians. What were the other resources that helped you as you went along? So getting early psychiatric care. I mean, really, there weren't a lot of resources, to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. um, the, the Physicians Health Program was about the only resource that was initially something that I found. Um, there's, there weren't any support groups that I found. 
um, until much later. Um, and those were online. And I think that that was just an evolution of, um, of the internet becoming more and more popular and online therapy becoming available, especially during the time of COVID. Um, but getting psychiatric care, having a psychiatrist that was dedicated to following me for more than a couple months was key. Um, because that's also part of the program of the Texas Physicians Health Program was you had to submit quarterly reports for monitoring from your psychiatrist. So I, I mean, there weren't a lot of resources to be honest with you. I, I kind of just, yeah. Yeah. And one thing that we haven't really talked about is, you know, what has been your interaction with patients, you know, if this is at all discoverable, things like that, and which it sounds like if people were just like, you know, hanging your banner everywhere about your diagnosis, which, you know, we can have our own thoughts about. Um, but, you know, clearly I'm sure some patient um, or many patients discovered this. What, what has been your experience um, from the doctor to physician or the uh, doctor to patient perspective? It's actually been quite rewarding um, because the people that that I have, that have discovered my diagnosis over the years have been very um, surprised by it and, and brought it up in, in a way that I did not anticipate, which was, um, cause there's only really been a handful of them, but they, they brought it up in the, in the realm of I'm suffering. And do you have any tips or tricks for me? And so I've dealt with patients that have severe anxiety, um, severe depression, and, and our relationship is, I think, stronger because I'm not, um, I'm not judging them for that. And I don't feel like that makes them, uh, an, you know, some in, in residency, we would say that they were one of those patients that requires a lot you know, <laughs> a lot of extra effort and, and we would try to pawn them off on each other, you know, but, um, since, since having my own diagnosis, I realized that a bipolar is not one of those people that are emotional, um, and emotionally labile that, you know, we, we all hear about when we're in medical school, that it's actually something different. And so I've approached the people with compassion and they have approached me with compassion. And so it hasn't been an issue of, I don't want to work with this physician because they have a mental health diagnosis. I, I have not actually approached that obstacle yet. I fear it. Yeah. I was going to ask you, I'm sure it probably crosses your mind. So what are your thoughts when you think about like, what are the fears that come up about uh, what a patient may think? Uh, the fears are that they would think that I'm, I'm not qualified that somehow I'm going to damage them because I, I'm, I'm not fit. And, you know, even anyone who doesn't have the obstacles that you've had, you know, we all struggle with how do we demonstrate our competence? How do we, you know, in the face of known complications of every single procedure we have, the fact that no one is perfect in, in this business, regardless of how technically perfect or knowledgeable we are, you know, we all have to face, you know, complications. 
And do you find that it's even harder for you to face complications or do you feel like you're even better equipped to manage it? I kind of feel like I'm better equipped. Um, when I have complications, I like I just had one this past weekend. I, I had somebody bleed post-op, which is the first time that I've had that significant complication. And I went to go beat myself up, which is, you know, what we, what we do when we have complications. And then I stopped myself and I said, you know, this is a known complication. We need to learn from this and you're not going to learn from it if you're being emotional about it. Right. And so I was able to kind of stop that negative self-talk. Yeah. But that's from years of therapy. (laughs) I'm sure, you know, I think that the ability to de- um, to develop a mechanism that allows us to protect ourselves to to continue in this, you know, we have a dangerous profession, like a mentally dangerous profession. As we all see this, you know, we voluntarily go each day to be overwhelmed, overworked, you know, like to do technically challenging things with known complications in complicated systems. We do this on, on purpose. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> So, I mean, I think all of us um, have to develop our own mental fortitude. And so it does not surprise me, actually, that you were better equipped to manage this than some of us who have not had to learn these these skills and, you know, these protections um, over time. It doesn't surprise me at all. I I will say that in dealing with colleagues, um, I have had colleagues tell me, do not ever share your diagnosis you will never get a job again. Mm-hmm. And that creates a lot of fear and a lot of self-doubt. Yeah. And so coming on this podcast and sharing my story was something that I had to really think about. Yeah. Because whereas I share my story with, with people that I trust very, very easily, um, those people are few and far between. Mm-hmm. And so to to be out there with, with such a diagnosis, I think there's still, still just such a stigma that somehow mental health is different than medical health. You know, that somehow um, bipolar is more terrible than, you know, um, than a, a horrible medical problem that that really can result in patient safety. You know, like um, somebody that has brittle diabetes that occasionally gets so hypoglycemic that they can't catch it in time and they pass out. Mm-hmm. You know, somehow my my diagnosis is worse than that. I remember um, I mentioned it, uh, you know, offline um, about that movie that uh, Juliana Moore in it. Um, she had Alzheimer's. Um, it was based on a true story. And um, she said, you know, I wish that I had cancer rather than Alzheimer's because no one understands this and it's, you know, stigmatized rather than, I mean, it's like there's support groups for cancer, you know, that you get help. And here, you know, I'm, I'm basically like everyone like avoids me. I'm like, like the plague. Um, and so, you know, she actually was wishing for a medical diagnosis rather than the mental one that she had, um, because of the lack of support, because of the perceptions that other people would have and how, you know, you know, scary and lonely and isolating it all was, um, where like when you desperately need help, the um, result of this is more isolation. Well, and that brings up a very funny 
um, dichotomy that I have faced myself is that I had breast cancer during training and everyone, it, it, it was like a celebration of support. Mm-hmm. And now you're a warrior. <laughs> I mean, yeah, right. You're a fighter, you know, and you're gonna, you're, you're a survivor somehow. And there's all of this positive um, talk around support of somebody with cancer. So I, I went from having um, a small cadre of people that were there almost daily with me, supporting me, going to functions where I was the key, keynote speaker raising funds for breast cancer, mm-hmm. you know, things of this nature. And then I had my second psychotic episode during that. And some of those people came to visit me and saw me as not me and dropped me like a hot potato Mm -hmm. at the moment when I actually needed help, (laughs) you know, they saw it as somehow, um, somehow dirty, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There aren't many t-shirts for that one. No, no, there's not many. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's, you know, it's, it's tough. Um, but I think that the more that we share this, you know, cause I think we all don't realize what our, our biases are and our limitations are, but you know, when we share this story, especially this dichotomy that you have, you know, it's, it's so obvious to see it now. It's so obvious to see where the problems are. Um, now, what would you, what advice would you give someone who is, you know, newly wondering, I think my brain is broken, you know, that's newly starting to have this thought. What are some of the things that you would tell them? First off, I would tell them that it's going to be okay. Um, That you can actually make it through and continue doing what you love. And then to reach out for help early from a mental health professional. Mm -hmm. Um, If if they're diagnosed with something that, um, you know, with a mental health diagnosis, or they have to go on to medication, then they are required to be part of the physician's health program. And I think that that message is not out there enough. Um, And if they self-refer, it's much better than having a problem with patient care and being referred by somebody else. Mm -hmm. And so I would say get help early, self-refer to the physician's health program so that you're, you're covered from a safety and legal standpoint. And, and just know that, that there's other people out there that have done it before you. And if they can do it and you believe in yourself, then you can do it too. Mm-hmm. And I love this message of that. You know, you will have the ability to be yourself again, because I'm sure that that's the first thing that comes up to your mind when you feel like you're not yourself. It's like, is this my new normal? Yeah. And it's, and it's hard to, to say that, that you're completely yourself because now you have this new diagnosis that you have to deal with, but you really can get back to your baseline and, and there's hope. There's just, there's hope. And I think that that is something that, that in that moment you feel so isolated that I just, I mean, I would just want them to know that there's, that there's other people out there that are suffering and that have suffered and have come through it. 
Well, I can tell you that, you know, this, uh, your story is the first step for many people, I'm sure, you know, your ability to share what you went through and to be vulnerable, which is a tremendous strength and to take what seems like a perceived weakness and, and recognize that this is actually, you know, potentially your life's inspiration to other people. It's going to have an exponential effect, which I'm sure when you were first told this did not feel that way. <laughs> no. And in some ways it still doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> I know I could tell this. I, I can tell that like each time I hear your story, I think that I see you realize it just a little bit more things that are really obvious that people that hear your story and go like, Whoa. <laughs> um, and, and I think that, you know, we, we certainly believe in your ability to, you know, shine a light on this and be an inspiration for other people. So I really appreciate you coming on and sharing your story and, you know, letting people know who are facing this exit that they don't have to exit and, you know, giving like real practical ways to, um, to move on and, you know, really just, you know, combating the isolation and the stigma that is so prevalent in anything related to mental health. Well, thank you for having me on. Um, like I said, this was something that, that I worried about, but it feels, feels right. And it feels like the right time. And, and I hope that it helps someone. I have no doubt that it will. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. For more information on the Boss Business of Surgery series, go to bosssurgery.com.